We've been inhabiting Advent as a season of waiting. That's the theme that we've been exploring, enlarged in the waiting. And we have this beautiful piece of artwork up here, which kind of two pieces of the painting are be at, being added each Sunday in Advent until we journey towards the fullness of its completion in Christmas. And that's meant to kind of visualize or draw our imaginations into the reality that we believe that the Lord uses seasons of waiting, and especially this particular season, to enlarge our capacity to receive what it is that he's promised to give us come Christmas, namely himself, his son. And so we've adopted Augustine's prayer as our own when he says, O Lord, the house of my soul is too small for you to come to it. May it be enlarged by you. But this week, waiting is interrupted by joy. Or another way to put it is, in the middle of waiting, joy erupts. Uh, the psalmist says, those who sow in tears shall one day reap with shouts of joy. And we see that beginning to happen in the first couple chapters of Luke's narrative about Jesus. Joy starts erupting from all the different characters. And so you see Mary, joy erupts as she hears that she is actually pregnant as the Lord said she would be. And the Magnificat comes. My soul magnifies the Lord. And then it's going to be Zechariah next week as he, his, his mouth is once again open to sing the praises of God. Blessed be the God of Israel because he has actually fulfilled what he said he would do. It's called the Benedictus. And then the angels erupt in praise as the heavens are opened up because the Savior of the world, the Messiah, has come. And they say, glory to God in the highest. And then Simeon, when he, he, when he holds that child in his hands in the temple, he says, behold, my, my, your servant can depart in peace. My eyes have seen your salvation. It's called the Nunc Dimittis. And so there's this clear pattern in the first couple chapters of Luke where God makes a promise and then when there's a sign that he has concretely fulfilled that promise, there's a pause in the narrative and somebody just erupts in singing. The theme of joy through the experience of singing is throughout our passage, and we're going to be in that space for the next four weeks. The painting that we've projected up here is called The Magnificat, and it's by Maka Shmakov, who is the same French artist who did this painting as well. I've said before how she's a psychologist, a theologian, and a painter, so she combines lots of things into one. And one of the things that I love about how she portrays Mary here is she portrays Mary in free motion. It's probably a little bit cut off because of the view we have here. But um, Mary is dancing here. She's moving. She's rejoicing with her whole body, and, and it looks like she may even have her shawl off which would be a, a sign of total abandon to the joy that she's experiencing. And then notice also the explosion of bright colors that radiate around her. Uh, this is not a cool, calm, collective, contemplative Mary. This is, this is Mary alive and vibrant and energetic and explosive with joy. And you get the sense that the joy that she has is something that she can no longer contain anymore. Um, it's one thing to ponder it. It's another thing to think about it. It's another thing to write about it. It's another thing to talk about it. But eventually, the joy that she experiences can only be sung by full throttle, full throated, deep, gutturable, guttural song. And so she sings. 
And what begins with Mary is not something that just ends with Mary. You can see the ripple effects of this joy cascade down through the ages as people write hymns like the one we just sung, Oh, for a, to- a Thousand Tongues to Sing. That was written by Charles Wesley on the first anniversary of his conversion. And it was one of what would eventually become 6,500 hymns that he wrote, roughly two hymns a week for the next 50 years of his life. And that, that sort of explosion of joy into the world is something that we see starting to unfold in our passage. And the question that I want to explore with you is why does Mary sing? What elicits such joy from her heart? Or better, in whom does Mary rejoice? And what is it about him that elicits such joy? Now, after answering this question for a little bit, I'm then going to ask the more difficult question, well, what if you and I don't feel like singing? What do we do then? So what is it about God that elicits such joy? I think it's three things here. It's that God is mindful God is merciful, and God is mighty. He's mindful. Twice, Mary sings of the mindfulness or the memory of God. This is a song for people who have felt forgotten. So look at verse 46 with me. My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why? For he has been mindful of the humble estate or the needy position of his servant. And then down in 54, it goes from personal to corporate. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, which he spoke to our fathers, Abraham and his offspring forever. And so Mary right away is signaling for us at the beginning and the end of her song that this is a matter of God's mindfulness of individual people but also his mindfulness of his whole people, whole communities. Whoever's in a low place, whoever's in a needy position, God is the God who sees them. Throughout the scriptures, we see that this is the character of God towards the poor and the needy and the barren and the broken and the widow and the orphan. God is the one who remembers those the world tends to forget. And God is the one who sees those the world tends to ignore. Now, in lived experience, there are a lot of saints throughout history who have had this experience of feeling forgotten by God. Um, And there may be some of you here today who are in that place of, yeah, I, I, I don't really know if God remembers me where I'm at right now. I mean, from Jeremiah to Job, to David, all the way through to Mother Teresa and the dark night of soul, there, there have been a long history of faithful people of God who have experienced this nagging question, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? And what Mary is doing is she is entering into that history, that long history of her people's struggles of her people's questions, and she's adding her voice to the chorus, and it happens to be a a dominant note because she's the mother of the Lord, after all. And she is affirming in the midst of her people's questions that God is indeed mindful of his people. He loves and he cherishes his children. He watches over them. So from beginning to end, this song is a resounding affirmation that God has not forgotten Mary, God has not forgotten Israel, 
God has not forgotten his church, and God has not forgotten you and me. So Mary rejoices because this is who God is. He's mindful of his people. And then Mary rejoices because God is merciful and he is mighty. And I'm just going to combine these two things because in the song, they are attributes of God that intersect and interconnect. Twice Mary sings of God's might or his strength. Verse 49, God's inherent might. He is the one who is mighty. He has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And then in verse 51, it's, it's the revelation of God's might in humbling the proud. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of his heart. And then to pair with these two mentions of God's might are two mentions of God's mercy. Verse 50, it's God's mercy, generational mercy, to anyone who fears him. And then verse 54, it's God's covenantal mercy to Israel. And if you notice, between these two mentions of God's mercy, there are three examples that Mary gives of what God's mercy and his might does in the world. It brings about reversal. And so verse 51, spiritual reversal. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. Verse 52, social political reversal. He has brought down mighty from their thrones, exalted those of humble estate. And verse 53, economic reversal. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. So in each case, Mary is saying that as the merciful and mighty Lord, God is the one who has the power to humble the proud, and he is the one who has the mercy to exalt the humble. In other words, what mercy is telling us, I mean, what mercy, what this child is telling us is that, is that the Lord that is, is coming into the world is going to reverse the present world order. He's going to use his power not for selfish gain, but for holy mercy towards the needy. And this is something that as we go through the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be in Luke for the next like four or five months, which is going to be amazing. Um, we're going to see this theme over and over again. I mean, you just flip a couple pages over and you go to chapter four. And Jesus is kind of giving the inaugural address in the synagogue for his, his public ministry. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? Because he's anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor, Jesus says. He sent me, why? To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and, and liberty to those who are oppressed and, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor for those who have not experienced a lot of favor in their life. So there's something about the heartbeat of Mary's song that brings us right into the heartbeat of her child, the mission in the kingdom of the Son of God, which is what nobody expected. This reign, this rule from the sovereign Lord where the first are last and the last are first. Or blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Where the Lord came not to seek and save the righteous, but those who are sinners. Where whoever wants to be great in this kingdom has to become like one of these little children. kingdom of God that's breaking into this world comforts those that are in low places and it challenges those that are in high places because it says to us that the only way into the kingdom of this child is the same for everyone 
It's total humility before God's might. And it's total dependence upon God's mercy. There's no other way. Now, you, most of you have lived longer than I have, so you, like me, have had experiences of churches where people have suffered a lot of abuse at the hands of prideful pastors. You've experienced corporations where employees have suffered a lot of abuse at the hands of wealthy investors or executives. I grew up in the Silicon Valley, and I saw that quite a lot. Or, or countries where citizens have suffered a lot of abuse at the hands of their political leaders. According to Mary, the Messiah of Israel does not shy away and will not shy away from this. He comes to enter into it and to bring reversal where the world most desperately needs it, to humble the proud and to heal the weak. This is the revelation of God's might. This is the revelation of his mercy. This is the revelation of his, of his holiness. And this is why Mary sings, because in the end, when she's looking at the grand scheme of things, and she knows the trouble of the world, she's looking at the grand scheme of things, she sees that all of history is going to be okay. Because all the people of history are going to be held in the hands of the Messiah, as Mary in this moment feels herself to be held in the hands of the Messiah, to whom she is giving birth. And so she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. But this sort of rejoicing raises a really personal and practical and pastoral question for a lot of us. Like, what if you and I don't feel the way Mary feels? <laughs> what if we're feeling disconnected from Mary's joy, her vision of the world through the eyes of her child? And it's a question that I think is just worth us being honest about and kind of naming openly that there are seasons of life where we don't actually feel like singing, <laughs> where maybe a deep kind of wordless groaning is about the most we can muster. So what do we do when we're in that silent space? And this is part of what we tried to explore this last Wednesday in our Hope Unfolding service. If, if you haven't, weren't able to come to it, I really encourage you to go online. It's about an hour long. You can listen to the songs and the readings, and I guarantee it will minister to you. Um, but we ask this question, what does it look like to inhabit Advent as a season of lament and longing as well as a season of hope unfolding? And in that service, I mentioned this New York Times article by a woman named Tish Harrison Warren that was published last Sunday, and it's called, I'm not ready for Christmas yet, I need a minute. And she, she has this wonderful little quote there. She, she wrote, I'm not ready for Christmas yet. I can't force myself to barrel into the festivities and holiday cheer. Can we press pause and just wait a minute? She says, I need a season to notice, to reflect on, to grieve what we collectively and I individually have walked through this year and really many years prior. I need to take stock of where I am and how I got here, end quote. So we're wrestling with Advent as a season of hope, but part of participating in hope is being able to name where we need it. And I sense that more people than usual are feeling disconnected from feelings of hope and joy, maybe this year. They don't feel like singing. So what do we do when we're in that place? Well, just a few things. 
I think the first thing we need to do, at least in reference to Mary, is just acknowledge that Mary's song is precisely for people that are in that place. It's for the people who feel forgotten. It's for the people who are in a low place. It's for the people who are downtrodden and downcast. Her song is for them. Second, I think we need to allow other people to sing for, with, to, and around us. We need to let other people sing for, with, to, and around us. The community carries the tune of praise when we cannot. The community sings redemption over us when we cannot. I mean, you see this even in the way that Mary's song is composed. If you were to go back and read the the songs of Moses and Miriam and and Deborah and Asaph and, and Judith and Hannah throughout the Old Testament, you would realize that that Mary has actually taken all of their songs and words as her own. She allows their words to become her own. I think it's a very practical and similar thing to what we do when we come together in the liturgy, what we do when we read the Psalms. We know that the community is praying with us, the community is singing with us, and when we don't have the capacity to carry the tune, they sing of God's mercy over us. So not only do we need to acknowledge that this song is precisely for people that are having a difficult time singing, but we need to allow the community to sing it for us. But third, and this is just a marvelous thought, we need to remember that God himself sings over us. Even when we struggle to sing to him, Zephaniah chapter 3. This is our Old Testament reading. I don't know if you caught this Old Testament reading, but this week I had forgotten about the book of Zephaniah for quite a while. (laughs) And And then it was the reading for this Sunday, and I was reading, oh my goodness. It gives us this picture of the people of God rejoicing in the salvation of their Lord, but then it gives us a picture of their Lord rejoicing over them. Verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And he will exalt over you with loud singing. My brothers and sisters, is that your picture of God? Exalting over you with loud singing. The joy of God in coming to be with his people the joy of God in becoming one of them and living with them. Circling back to Maka's painting of the Magnificat, there's one detail about this painting that has puzzled me the last couple weeks. It's that the figure does not have long hair and is not wearing a shawl, which is typical of Maka's paintings for Mary or for women She's painting in biblical scenes most of the time. So it's made me start to wonder, could this figure maybe be a father figure? Could it be that this Magnificat painting depicts not just Mary, but God himself? 
Could it be that this is an image of God rejoicing in this pivotal moment of salvation history as his eternal son enters into the life of the world? Could it be that, like John the Baptist, he too leaps for joy at the thought of saving his people? Such is the character of the mindful and the merciful and the mighty and the holy and the living God. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.